Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, how MITRE's Engage Matrix is providing free cyber tools to improve security. Joining us today is retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is also a Senior Advisor uh, to the Bipartisan Cyber Solarium Commission. Mark, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bob. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And of course, Northrop Grumman sponsors our uh, broader cyber coverage. Uh, Mark, we have had uh, two major budget drops, actually, in the span of the last uh, week and a half or so, right? There was the FY22 uh, appropriations. Uh, and of course, the uh, Biden administration on Monday uh, made its 23 uh, request, $773 billion, 10% higher on the DOD uh, side of things. And I want to get to that in a minute. But first, talk to us about FY22. 22 appropriations uh, and what that m- has meant and how that's actually meaningfully moved uh, the cyber uh, needle uh, forward. You're absolutely right, Vago. You know, just 10 days ago, we got the uh, 22 appropriations bill and it provided significant funding increases in a number of critical cybersecurity programs, including most importantly, CISA or the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, which is really the quarterback of our uh, of our uh, um, government and public-private efforts in cybersecurity and securing our critical infrastructure. What they ended up with was the original, the current budget's $2 billion. The president's request was for $2.1 billion. Uh, we in the Cyberspace Land Commission had recommended $2.5 billion, and Congress came in at almost $2.6 billion. Uh, and they really did fund important things. They, they uh, got money to, to do its sector risk management job, which is to provide support to the public-private uh, infrastructures, uh, you know, in, in, um, in transportation and energy and other areas. Uh, a lot of good money for cybersecurity education and training for K through 12. Um, a lot of uh, threat detection equipment that they'll share with inside the government, uh, you know, kind of, a, you know, starting themselves down the zero trust lane of assume they're inside your system, find out how to take care of it. So, and really uh, some good money for the Joint Cyber Planning Office, which the commission had pushed which is now part of uh, CISA's Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. So really good investments in CISA. Um, I would say this is offset slightly by not properly funding NIST, which is the National Institutes and Centers in Technology at the uh, Department of Commerce. NIST is supposed to be the one developing all these executive orders um, and not properly funding the National Science Foundation Scholarship for Service Program and ROTC-like program to hire civilian government workers. And really what happened was the president had asked for a lot of money and Congress had actually appropriated what the president asked for. These were both about 15% increases. But then at the very end game, there is this, you know, instead of a scalpel, out came a chainsaw and they whacked off 10% of all non-DOD budgets and all those gains, all what the president had asked for and Congress had agreed to at the, at the committee level was whacked away and they had almost no growth. Ironically, this didn't affect CISA because CISA is uniquely like the portions of the Coast Guard covered inside the DOD budget, which did not experience this 10% cut at the very end game. So um, overall, it is a positive, the, appro- the 22 approaches, because funding says a, the, our commission has always said was the, the critical lever that needed to be done. Uh, but there were some errors made. There really were end game errors, which is what often happens uh, when you're trying to get to that final consensus deal. 
Um, I should uh, point out to the audience that you have a lot of Senate experience because you worked for the uh, late great Senator uh, John McCain. Um, what do you make of the administration's 23 request and is the money going to the right places in the right ways, right? I mean, I don't even want to get to the criticisms that are being heaped on, whether about integrated deterrence or about ship counts or airplane decisions, but ultimately looking at it from a cyber perspective, did the administration make some of the right calls and is the money going to the right places? In cyber, and I'll confine myself to cyber here, both DOD and non-DOD, the answer is a straightforward yes. Uh, you see the right kind of investment. So the, the NIST and the National Science Foundation money that I mentioned being lost before, I think is coming back in. We don't have the specifics, you know, in these kind of agencies, you really need the, you know, the equivalent of the J books, you know, to, to kind of right. dig down into it. But I can see the right sort of numbers developing. And, uh, and, and I saw, and, and in CISA, they asked for 2.5 billion. Now you might say, well, look, the Congress has approved, approved 2.6 billion, but it, frankly, this budget was written three months ago before they knew that Congress was going to somehow reach a highest common denominator solution with 2.6 billion. So I'm comfortable that Congress will take the president's 2.5 million, 2.5 billion, it says, and probably make it 2.7 billion, which is the right number. Uh, I also saw some really good money in the Department of Commerce budget on leadership and international standards development. This is critical. These are places where standards are set and the, and the Chinese have brought in their non-transparent, non-rules-based systems and tried to influence these organizations to be biased towards, Jap uh, towards excuse me, Chinese state-owned enterprise solutions. We need to get involved in this game. And you see even small investments in the right places. And finally, on DOD, you can see the growth in the cyber mission force teams. You know, we asked for a force structure assessment that uh, General Nakasone is doing right now. Congress directed that to be done in about, in about six to nine months from now. He's clearly lead turning, you know, to get, you know, he, he's starting to build in the, the appropriate answer, which is growth in our cyber mission forces uh, ahead of, you know, kind of shooting ahead of the, the rabbit. And, you know, you got to love it when you have that kind of like, uh, you know, you know, visionary leadership like you get from General Nakasone at the Cybercom NSA uh, in, in making these decisions to uh, to invest uh, ahead of the force structure assessment that I know will say needs even greater growth than what he recommended. Uh, and uh, and and certainly right. I mean, this is consistent with the administration's broader drive with Chris Inglis uh, and Ann Newberger at the White House, and of course Jenny Easterly, as you mentioned at, at CISA, and of course General Nakasone makes a uh, ideal compliment, perfect compliment um, to that team. Um, Let's talk about China and cyber a little bit more, because I do want to go to Russia and 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 Ukraine, uh, especially given how uh, engaged uh, NSA, Cybercom, GCHQ, and the like are. We heard from uh, Nigel Linkster of IISS last week uh, on on that issue. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about China and cyber and where um, you know the progress as you see it for the United States to step up its 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 game as the competition between the United States and China continues to heat up. Well, I think first we have to we have to approach this across, you know, not just the military investments, but also the um, the uh, the uh, you know making sure we compete in those international standards organizations I mentioned um, in the competes at, in the China bill that's being um, conferenced right now. There's some very strong, you know, there's some language that actually identifies appropriate sanctions for China when we catch them. Uh, doing cyber malicious activity. It's very consistent with what we already have for, uh, uh, for Russia. So you see us starting to, to get things in place to treat Chinese gray zone warfare the same way we treated, treated Russian. 
I have to tell you, the Chinese are probably taking a lesson from the Russian experience here. The Russians had been very successful in handling Ukraine as a gray zone conflict. When, when they took it to a much more starker kinetic conflict, you can see they bogged down. Now, look, China doesn't have a, a Russian military. The tactics it's going to be using against us are not heavily you know, ground maneuver based. So I wouldn't learn too much from it. But if I were the Chinese, I definitely learned the idea that, hey, um, it's much easier to deal with democracies and, you know, and to kind of exploit the seams and weaknesses when you're competing with us in the gray zone where it's hard for us to attribute things. It's hard for us to get a consensus of uh, allies and partners than when you kind of use the blunt force trauma that, uh, that Russia has been using against Ukraine, where basically the whole international community, except for China, Iran and North Korea, kind of line up against you. Let's talk about Russia, Ukraine uh, for for a moment. You were kind enough to join us a couple of weeks ago, and almost every week we're asking uh, our guests this very question about what uh, we're learning, why we're not seeing the kind of activity we've uh, expected. Uh, obviously, there is a sense that the Rush and the Russians have done a couple of things, but they've been more on the Ukraine side, and it is apparent that we are defending forward, and everybody's shields are up, right? So we've made it a little bit harder for them to do this. Give us your best sort of a an assessment on where we are, what we should expect, and whether we should expect, as the White House has suggested a couple of times, I want to get into a conversation uh, that maybe should not have been as public that uh, uh, that uh, Jenny certainly did have uh, with, with corporate CEOs. Um, where, where are we now, Mark? And how do we need to think about where we are if we're going to, um, right, we're moving the needle, but he still has the attacker's advantage in in many cases right i mean he 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 can pick when he attacks us we just have to defend all the time yeah this is a great question so and i'll break it up into two answers the first is about what's happening in ukraine and the second is about what cap what could happen in the united states so what's happening in ukraine is look in some ways i think uh, russia is the victim of its own successes they successfully you know they used cyber a little bit in 2008 against uh georgia they used a little bit more in 2014 in terms of uh website defacements and um, and minor distributed denial services as part of their 2014 Crimea um, annexation and assault. Um, but then in 2015 and 16, they did significant uh, cyber attacks on Ukrainian electrical power grids. In 2017, kind of more famously, they, they launched NAPECHA against uh, Ukrainian financial services and government websites. It leaked into Western Europe and collateral damage of almost $10 billion. And I think as part of that, the United States said, hey, look, we're going to work with the Ukrainians to help them here. First of all, the Ukrainians helped themselves and they concentrated on this area and they've done well. But in addition, they got uh, both USAID cyber capacity building grants, pretty significant ones, some of the largest we give to any country, um, about uh, nearly $50 million over four years. Uh, the EU matched us with some, some of their own programs. And then there, there was, as you uh, mentioned, some some cyber command assistance as well in, in terms of teams. Whether they were specific on four teams or not, I think we'll have to wait for uh, General Noxonia to say for certain, but certainly they provided assistance and you can see some contracting happening at the end game that was clearly from, from DOD um, you know, last, late last fall. So really a lot of assistance to help Ukraine. Ukraine's done a great job of doing this. I also think the Russians tempered their initial attacks uh, predicated on the idea that they were going to have overwhelming success and, and why damage, you know, infrastructure you're about to fall in on. So in general, in Ukraine, that's a successful story of healing themselves, the Ukrainians getting better, 
good cyber capacity building from the United States and the European Union and others, and uh, probably Russia tempering their attack. When you turn to what's going to go happening in the United States, it's different. This is about one, if Vladimir Putin decides to pull the trigger on us, what will happen? You know, what would he do and what will happen? And, you know, for me, the, the decision to pull the trigger is probably based on when significant sanctions on his oil delivery to Europe kick in. In other words, right now, we have gotten out of the Russian, you know, oil uh, and natural gas uh, importing business. I, to my knowledge, the Europeans are still buying nearly $300 million a day worth of natural gas and oil from Russia. Were that to be, um, you know, impeded, you know, cut that cut in half or even removed, that would cause significant, you know, GDP wrecking damage, uh, to, it, probably almost irrecoverable to the, to the Russian economy. And then I think he strikes out. And of course, he can't sanction us, you know, and he can't use SWIFT against us. He's going to have to use the only tools at his, at his disposal. Those are malicious cyber tools. That's what CISA, the FBI, and the NSA have been warning companies could be coming. And, and what I don't know is will he attack individual companies or will he attack critical infrastructures that affect our public health and safety? If you do number two, you're going to get the horns, right? We're going to come back at you pretty hard, I think. We, we can't allow somebody to attack our critical infrastructure like that. If you attack individual businesses, I'm not sure how escalatory we would see that and how we would respond except possibly with more sanctions. So that's the kind of balance you're gonna be, you're gonna be seeing. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I, I think that that dog hasn't barked yet. Uh, and of course, the, the president has, has reminded and, and the administration has reminded Russia uh, that we told you what our red lines are. And if you approach him, you, you're gonna get zonked. Um, let me ask you quickly, how does all this change uh, where uh, Congress goes uh, and where the Solarium Commission goes? Because um, I think uh, the, the co-chairs, uh, Angus, Senator Angus King, uh, the main independent, and Mike Gallagher, the uh, Republican from Wisconsin, uh, have really tried to skate to where the puck's going to be as opposed to being fully reactive. I know that you worked on that. Uh, you were the executive director uh, of the commission. You're now a senior advisor. Where, where are lawmakers' heads? Where are they going to be going? What's next out of the commission? So I think two answers to that. First, the commission itself, you're absolutely right. As, as we've uh, re reconstitute ourselves as a as a 501c3 we're pushing hard for the long-term solutions you know the how do you build the public-private partnership that we need five to seven years from now and um and uh how do you uh you know get state department properly organized for success in the cyber domain issues like that um you know and you know we're tackling like the kind of like a dumpster fire that's our critical, the water sector in our critical infrastructure. So we're working on these kind of longer term issues. But you're right, there is, in terms of any kind of short term response, it would be, you know, we had recommendations on cyber capacity building that we're kind of bringing back up and making sure being properly funded. You know, we were we were happy with, you know, the kind of low levels of funding, the, the improvements in the low levels of funding. But I think one of the lessons learned here is the, uh, the value in making sure that at least among the beleaguered democracies around the world, those democracies that are under threat, from authoritarian regimes like, you know, c countries like Taiwan, uh, Georgia, Ukraine, the Baltic states, Israel, that those kind of countries are properly, you know, being properly supported by us. Some of them have good cyber to begin with, but others could really use some assistance. So you'll see both the long-term kind of like, you know, plotting work that's really critical to getting the infrastructure secure, but you also see some kind of temporal responses based on what we're seeing in the Russia-Ukraine crisis.
And and uh, in about 30 uh, seconds, uh, Jenny surely had a conversation with uh, CEOs, and unfortunately, uh, that was released, and I'm not sure it should have been released. Does that cause any trust issue or lingering uh, problem from, from your perspective, uh, given that uh, not everybody wants these conversations to be – it does not appear that people thought that that, that transcript uh, and conversation would be released, let's put it that way. So it's, it's hard for me to know the exact, you know, what was signed ahead, what was agreed to ahead of time. But what I'll say in general, Jen Easterly has been, been preaching the appropriate gospel to the critical infrastructure groups. And if that comes out in public, you know, I'm, I'm not bothered. Their response is they probably should have been protected in the sense of if they had an agreement not to discuss them, they shouldn't have been. But Easterly's doing the right thing. Look, if you've invested in cybersecurity over the last two to three years, you need to be switching your rheostat more towards security and less towards, uh, you know, ease of use because we are in a higher risk environment. Now, I will say all those uh, warnings are kind of meaningless if you haven't invested in cyber resilience for the last two to three years, because there's not much you can do in two to three weeks that make up for poor investment in two to three years. Mark, it is always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. I'm looking, already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you, Vago. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And joining us now is Moretta Morovitz, uh, who leads MITRE's Engage team that oversees the federally funded Research and Development Center's free set of cybersecurity tools. And she joins us as the nation and indeed the world prepares to uh, celebrate uh, National Cyber Deception Day that, interestingly enough, falls on April Fool's um, April Fool's Day each year. Moretta, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and really excited to talk about deception and Cyber Deception Day. Uh, a lot going on right now, so exciting time. Start off, what's, what's Cyber Deception Day and why is it worth observing? So Cyber Deception Day is sort of a, a new thing we're trying out this year and we're really excited to see the community picking it up. Um, it actually came last year on April Fool's Day from a conversation that Dr. Stan Barr, uh, Dr. Barr is one of the kind of leads on the Engage team that helped form the team that we have today. Uh, so he was on a podcast actually last year with George Finney and the two of them um, were discussing about zero trust and deception and sort of said, wow, it would be great if we had a holiday um, sort of celebrate those things. And so Cyber Deception Day was born on April Fool's Day as a result of that conversation. And we're really excited about the number of organizations who have been picking this up. Um, so MITRE is going to be putting out um, a number of roundtables. We're calling Denial, Deception, and Drinks on the Day. But we also have folks from SANS, Kevin Fiscus, um, some folks from um, a bunch of different organizations that are putting on live events and have new content coming out. So it should be really exciting. Uh, and and what do you hope to achieve, uh, right? Because it started humorously, but there's actually a serious purpose to it. There is. Um, I think one of the things that the cyber deception community really needs um, is a community, right? And we have lots of different organizations have been using this technology space for a long time. We have a lot of different vendors in this space. We have a lot of different use cases. Um, and what we're really trying to do with this day is help these different organizations, help these different groups to come together and be able to have that common core, that common community. And so our hope is, you know, just like on National Puppy Day and everyone's sharing pictures of their dogs that on National Cyber Deception Day, everyone's gonna be sharing kind of innovations and research and ideas in the space and helping um, us recognize one another um, for the fellow practitioners can get to know each other, um, but also folks that might be on the outside looking in saying, what is this deception thing? And how do I, how do I get involved can find that jumping off point. 
uh, you know, share a picture of your code, although that's not as cute as sharing pictures uh, of your hedgehog. Uh, for example. <laughs> um, talk to us a little bit about deception, right? I mean, we have an audience that spans, uh, you know, technical folks uh, to senior folks that are not as technically deep. And we talk about issues, uh, you know, cyber defense, cyber offense and the like. But talk to us about cyber deception and what that means and how people need to think about it. Yeah. So I think deception is one of those words that actually in a lot of ways, um, and this is a bit of a U.S. perspective, but it's almost a dirty word sometimes, right? So if we think back even historically to the way we've th thought about war and battles, right? Deception, even if it was effective, sometimes scared people off a little bit. And I think sometimes that deception still has that, that impact on people when we start talking about it. And people will say, oh, I don't want to do disinformation, right? That's definitely something that a company doesn't want to be seen doing. And so part of what deception is and part of what MITRE engages role in this is helping people really understand what do we mean by deception and what is um, this opportunity space and this technology space? And so when MITRE talks about deception, we typically talk actually about kind of three, three parts. We talk about denial, the things you do to disrupt and stop an adversary, deception, the things you do to mislead and confuse, and then adversary engagement, which is where you put those two pieces together, sort of coupled with strategic planning and analysis, and use that to further your goals, whether that's to expose adversaries on a network, whether it's to affect them in some way, and we're talking about effects in your own space, right? So it might be to slow them down or to move them in a different direction or to keep them away from a specific resource, um, or it could be an elicitation um, operation. And so we have a whole pile of work that we do around deception, which is really about um, cyber threat intelligence, right? And being able to contextualize more than just, here's a collection of IOCs, right? But what happens when we put an adversary in an environment and actually watch them and we learn from them by watching how they behave and interact. And so there's a whole pile of deception work that involves around, around that space and contextualizing um, cyber threat intelligence. So it's really a kind of broad topic and that was a, a bit of a fire hose in terms of the different opportunity spaces, but that's just the way that we think about it. Um, and, and it is a, a very thoughtful way of thinking about it, right? It's, it's a more, more uh, strategic campaign oriented uh, way, way of looking at it. Walk us through what the Engage uh, team uh, does at MITRE, uh, because anybody who knows anything about the organization knows uh, the, the formidable uh, engineering and scientific skills uh, you bring to bear. We had uh, Dr. Keoki Jackson, the head of the national security practice on uh, last week for one of our technology conversations, but, but sort of walk us through what, what you guys do there at the Engage team. Yeah, so I think um, MITRE really is um, the perfect place for the Engage team in a lot of ways because, um, you know, everyone thinks of MITRE and we think of ATT&CK, right? And ATT&CK has done some really important work and um, really meaningful contributions. Um, but the Engage team gets to sit alongside teams like ATT&CK that are doing um, sort of like TTPs and documentation of TTPs. We get to sit alongside teams like Caldera that are doing adversary emulation. Um, and we have all of this different threat informed defense work that Engage kind of gets to sit in the middle of. And so we're in this really exciting space where we get to take information coming from attack and take information coming from Caldera and take these different teams, this different work happening um, and be able to actually apply it to situations where we're doing engagements. And so part of what the adversary engagement teams that MITRE do is our own operations. So we do stuff for research, we do tool development, um, kind of pushing the boundaries on art of the possible. And the other half of the, of the engaged team is working in the community to push this stuff out there. And so things like the engaged matrix, things like the engaged starter kit, our 10 step process um, is our way of trying to take the lessons that we've been learning for a really long time and share them back. So we kind of have a foot in the operations world and a foot uh, in, the, in the sharing with the community world. 
Uh, and I should, uh, I should I should say also that uh, the framework uh, that you guys have is also uh, critical and shows up often uh, in uh, CISA uh, guidance. Um, uh, and I should say the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agencies uh, uh, advisories and, and and such. Talk to us a little bit about the free tool set, uh, Moretta, that you guys have. How people can access it and why it's so important in a time when everybody is really, really concerned. You know, as, as you said, it's an exciting time, uh, unfortunately. Um, talk to us about the, the tool sets that you guys have available for, for folks to use to improve their security. Sure. Um, so if you go to engage.mitre.org, that's our, our collection of all of our various resources. The kind of core and fundamental part of our offerings is our Engage matrix. So if you're familiar with attack, it sort of visually looks similar. Um, it's just representing different things. And so with the Engage matrix, what we're trying to help organizations do is think about an operation and deception from the planning process through the execution and then ending with um, sort of the, the analysis and understand piece. And to us, those two bookends that prepare and that understand are really core and critical to deception. One of the misconceptions that happens a lot in this space is people think about a people think about deception as a tech stack, um, and when you start having that mindset, then it leads to things like, oh, I can only do deception if I have a million dollars for the super subatomic honeypot on the blockchain, right? And you start thinking you need all these big tools. And one of the things we're trying to do with Engage is really focus on if you identify what your goals are, which is part of what the matrix will help you do, and you plan towards that goals, what are the bite-sized chunks that I need to take on to do deception and to start making progress and to start sort of getting my feet wet in this space? And so a big component of the matrix is helping teams think through that process. We also have a collection of tools on there um, that are really meant for beginner teams. So we have a whole starter kit where we pulled a collection of our different tools, things like how do I start thinking about organizing um, my information? And how do I think about um, sort of moving through the different stages of an operation? How do I think about the planning process? One of the things that we lean heavily on and believe in is that cyber deception can learn a lot from the history we have in deception. So if you think about military deception, there's a rich history of research and literature in this space. And so one of the things we did was we took the uh, process of deception that Barton Whaley wrote and we adapted that for, for cyber operations. And so we have that on there where teams can follow that process through. Um, we also have some tools such as our matrix explorer, which lets you um, look through the different parts of our matrix and map it to attack. So one of the things that we believe strongly in is that your deception should be driven by adversary behavior. And so you can go on our explorer and you can look at what are the historical TTPs that an adversary has shown in the past? And what is the opportunity space that that gives me as the defender? So. We talk about every time an adversary takes an action, there's an unintended consequence to that action. So for example, if an adversary steals a document, the unintended consequence or unintended vulnerability is that now they have information and you can give them fake information, you can give them um, sort of misleading information, you can give them um, false information. So for example, if you have decoy credentials scattered in your environment and an adversary steals a credential and then they go and use it somewhere else, the vulnerability there is that you now have some insight into where have they been, where are they going? Um, you have a high fidelity detection that you can potentially use. So we map through the different opportunity spaces that the attack um, TTPs will provide for the defenders. And it's interesting that you mentioned CISA. We actually just recently took a CISA alert that came out in regard to Russian APT activity against critical infrastructure. And we took the various attack TTPs that were listed in that report and mapped it to engage to one, give defenders sort of practical um, art of the possible in terms of what deception allows, 
um, but also to sort of help people walk through how would I apply this framework and how do I start thinking about the deception opportunities? Um, I uh, am a, a, a student of uh, deception, which I think is fascinating. And I always think about Nicholas uh, Rankin's uh, book, A Genius uh, for uh, Deception. Uh, about you know how the British military used deception and you know, to effectively help it win uh, two uh, world wars. Let me let me ask you specifically on what we're seeing from our Russian uh, friends in in Ukraine and how we need to think about how they're operating, how they're likely to operate if we're going to best defend ourselves. What are what are some key things uh, that you know as as everybody does this sort of you know shields up. What does that mean from your perspective and how do folks need to be thinking about what it is that's coming their way? Um, so I think that's a great question. I'm going to preface this question with saying that deception is my space. And um, I, I do have some familiarity with different Russian APT activities. And like the rest of the world, I've been watching and kind of glued to the TV around everything that's been happening. But um, especially compared to other MITRE experts, I'm definitely no expert, um, but I'm happy to, to kind of give my thoughts. And I think one of the big things, and our team has focused a bit on, on critical infrastructure, um, that's that's really interesting and sort of an opportunity for defenders in the space is we tend to think, oh, critical infrastructure, OT, ICS, like it's all different, right? We can't apply the, the things that we have learned um, in deception for IT. But I think Dragos, I believe, was the ones who put out a report talking about the two stages of an ICS um, an ICS attack and how the first stage, it's still IT, right? And there's a long period of time where it's still an IT attack before it moves into that OT and those critical systems. And so one of the things we talked about in our blog post was how you know, that IT period, you can take some of the lessons learned, you can take the same um, opportunities that we are thinking about when it comes to um, sort of other, other attack surfaces and apply them there. The other piece that we think about a lot, um, and this is again a little bit general and I'll get into more specifics in a second, but whenever an adversary is landing on a network, whether it's an external threat, an insider threat, there's gaps in their knowledge of that network. And so when the minute, from the minute they land, their whole job is about driving down their uncertainty, driving down their doubts and filling in the gaps that they need to understand about their environment. And we see this sort of across adversaries, right? It's, that's, that's pretty much a generic and it's a given. And so one of the things that we think about is what is your opportunities as a defender to start turning up that ambiguity knob, to start, start changing that uncertainty and doubt in ways that are beneficial to the defender. So for example, um, when I talked about decoy credentials before, we see that across the different um, Russian APT activities that we've seen historically. And, and I know that CISA report that I was mentioning kind of talks about it as well. Um, there's a variety of different activities that we sort of see in that on that reconnaissance that all are around active directory all are around credential harvesting all are around sort of lateral movements and different kind of basic things and all of those regardless of who the apt is have opportunities for deception that are shared and i think that's something that's important to remember is yes there's going to be opportunities to sort of highly tailor your deceptions to a specific adversary but there's also opportunities to sort of look more broadly at the landscape and say, okay, what can I do with Active Directory? What can I do with file hiding and, and have certain files show up and certain files disappear depending on um, how I'm looking at, who's looking at my system? How do I start sprinkling in decoy accounts and decoy credentials and not just obvious, right? It's right. easy enough to rename your admin accounts, not admin and your um, actual admin or your rename your admin accounts, not admin and rename your random user account, admin here kind of thing. And where you know, have a file that says super special sauce here, but how do we start thinking about doing that um, a little bit more believably and a little bit more um, subtly in ways that kind of apply across our networks? 
Um, trying to think one of some of the other pieces that we've, we've been talking about in this. Um, another interesting one um, is, you know, mounting different directories. So there's um, some tools out there for uh, if you have a directory that you mount from the GUI and it can be seen so your regular users can see that directory and see the files in it. But when you mount it from, um, from a command line, it's not seen and it's not visible. So now your, your remote shell actors can't see the same things that your users can and sort of what's the opportunity space there. Some of the other, some of the other things that we've been thinking about as well around um, what can you do with honey tokens, right? So um, Open Canary has a great um, open source tool where you can embed honey tokens in different documents. And so um, you can basically create your own little beacons to be able to follow documents as they move around and they have it for a variety of different things beyond just documents. So great open source tool there as well. Um, that is absolutely uh, terrific, uh, Moretta. Uh, and, and thanks so very much for joining us. And you used a couple of acronyms and uh, one of them when you said ICS is industrial control systems, uh, for example, just uh, for those in the audience who may have uh, might have missed that. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely terrific conversation and look forward to having you back on the program again uh, soon. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you so much. I had a fantastic time and appreciate the chance to have the discussion. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.